All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, so I'm Greg Corolla. I lead our business development team for our database services at AWS. And joining me today is uh, John and Aaron, and they'll introduce themselves when it comes time for their section. Uh, but just to kind of give you an expectation, uh, so I'll start things out, talk a little bit about you know, what's really the advantages of migrating to open source database engines, uh, some of the motivations customers have to uh, uh, migrate, and then John will talk about um, actual mechanisms of, of migrating in terms of services we offer to help um, um, with that transition. And then Aaron will actually talk about at FINRA uh, how they were able to implement this and some of the lessons learned. And then our anticipation is that you know we'll leave about 15 minutes or so for questions because we want to make this interactive as well as much as possible. So we'll, we'll try to leave time at the end uh, for Q&A. Uh, so just talking about uh, open source database engines. So you know myself, I've been with AWS about three years. Uh, majority of my career, I was at Oracle, where I was part of um, a pre-sales team for Oracle Database. And I think you know if, if you are coming from a commercial database engine today, uh, perhaps this kind of pattern of purchasing commercial licenses uh, makes sense, right? And you know, as you kind of increase capacity and you increase uh, demand, of course, you know, there's always a step function, typically at the end of the year, or some kind that you have to true up, where you kind of see this ever-escalating uh, commercial licensing costs for your databases, right? And oftentimes, this is one of the key motivations that customers come to us with, is that you know, at some point, this cost curve becomes unsustainable, right? Or becomes too onerous to the business and particularly if you're not using uh, uh, commercial applications that are dependent upon the commercial database itself. So you know, many times you, know, you might be, have a custom-built application um, or you're not using all the features and functions that you know, uh, commercial databases provide. And so the question is, you know, can we essentially set the high watermark in terms of the uh, licensing fees uh, and, and support maintenance fees? And then you know, think about, is there a way we can bring that down, right? So, do an evaluation of our systems to understand, you know, which ones, you know, have strict dependencies either from a code perspective or from application dependencies, um, and then segregate out the ones that don't have those dependencies and choose an open source database engine like MySQL or Postgres that uh, could be an alternative to a uh, commercial database license. And I'll talk a little about how, you know, AWS can help that. And then, of course, um, some customers say, you know, that goal at the end is to be fully on open source engines, right? But in reality, uh, particularly with enterprise customers, you say, well, you know, there could be a, a core set of applications uh, that, you know, really will continue to require the, the commercial database. And that commercial database can either be on um, AWS, either on EC2 or part of RDS, or even it could be on-premise database, right? So, you know, it depends upon where that uh, makes the most sense to run that. but. For the rest of the databases, hopefully, you know, in the end, we're much more agile in terms of uh, uh, using the capacity we actually require, and then uh, hopefully, you know, from a cost perspective, taking advantage of a lot of the uh, features that open source databases bring running on AWS platform. Uh, so, you know, there's always a choice in terms of where you run your database within AWS. Of course, you know, there, we call it the, the first option is self-managed. So, you know, using EC2 and Elastic Block Store, EBS, uh, you can install and configure your database of choice. But increasingly, customers want to remove some of the complexity of managing their database in terms of what you might call undifferentiated effort. And these are these super critical tasks like backups and patching and planning for high availability that are, you know, critical to running our database, but at the same time uh, don't necessarily add uniqueness to your application. So, 
the core tenet of RDS, or relational database services, let's remove some of that um, undifferentiated effort and think of the database as an endpoint. So really, a database as a service. And then, uh, as you'll commonly find with AWS services, we want to enable choice uh, through that. So we don't think that, and don't want to force you into you know, one database engine, in the case of RDS, to meet all of your needs. So we think by providing a wide spectrum of both commercial databases as well as open source databases can not only provide flexibility for your business, but also choices in terms of how you migrate. And, and if you take this path of moving to open source databases from commercial, that you essentially have a managed option within AWS as well, if it makes sense. Um, and many customers will kind of add on top of this, where on the commercial databases, we have uh, two licensing models. The first is uh, bring your own license, where if you have licenses of Oracle or SQL Server, you can bring them to AWS, um, but then still take advantage of the management capabilities of RDS service. Or uh, depending upon you know, your region and the specific version of the database you're looking at, uh, we have options in terms of uh, license included. And what license included does is it provides, as part of the hourly cost, not only the infrastructure and the services in terms of uh, RDS monitoring and backups and configuration, um, but actually you uh, provide the commercial software licensing through that cost as well. And many details on our pricing page to go through that. But the reason I bring that up in, in, in this context of this conversation is that um, if you are embarking upon this commercial license reduction strategy, uh, you know, you might not want to renew for a full year or three years of your commercial licenses. And so the license included option kind of provides that runway where you can continue to run your Oracle or SQL Server uh, workload, but now, you know, pay by the hour, right? And then as you migrate to open source potentially, uh, you know, Postgres or MySQL or MariaDB, that you'd be able to then, you know, extend the life of the current application. So lots of details that, that are provided on our pricing page. And of course, options and pricing do vary by region, so it's important to understand the differences in the region uh, in which you're operating. Um, and then, you know, I've talked about this a little bit, so, you know, what's the premise of RDS is, you know, thinking about where do database administrators spend their time. And so a lot of time is spent on, you know, from an infrastructure perspective, you know, there's the basics like, you know, you know, configuring and provisioning the hardware, right, racking and stacking it. There's the idea that you have to install the operating system, patch the operating system. You need to think about installing and patching the database software. Uh, think about storage and how much storage do I need to allocate and what's the demand going to be like one year, two years, or three years because you're essentially, you know, purchasing this hardware to be able to run. But even if you choose to run your database on EC2, you certainly you remove some of that complexity, so it provides a lot of flexibility in terms of right-sizing your database workload to the actual computational memory requirements. Um, but still, the operating system and database uh, patching and planning for backups, planning for high availability are all still required. And then if you look at the, the blue piece uh, this, on this particular visualization, uh, we say this is roughly 25 to 30 percent of your time, which is actually the interesting thing, which is making your application perform, to add value to the business, right, to be able to add uniqueness in terms of the functionality that the database is providing. And so with RDS, you know, we want to think about, you know, what if you could provision a new database in less than six minutes, right? So uh, in terms of evaluating open source databases, do they make sense? A lot of customers will say, well, I don't have the operational experience in terms of providing high availability or backups for Postgres, for instance, but by leveraging RDS service, and this is all included, and you can quickly test and evaluate 
and then if the test is successful, scale to, produ to production scale, or turn it off, right? And this you know, iterative approach really becomes uh, uh, an important uh, step in terms of how we migrate. And then you know, things like multi-availability zones. So how do I provision a standby database with a completely separate data center or availability zone? If you look at uh, doing that on your own, sometimes it could take, you know, I think we documented about 122 steps on, on MySQL for high availability and multi-AZ if you did it through uh, EC2. But on RDS service, it's just a single API call or single checkbox, um, which provides a lot of flexibility in terms of having that production quality database. Um, and then patching on RDS, there's a lot of details in terms of how patches are applied. You can opt in or opt out of patches, but simplistically, you know, we want to provide an automated way for database patches, for operating system patches. So, of course, you have control in terms of when patches get applied and, you know, being able to test them beforehand, but, you know, always staying current on, on those becomes an increasing uh, value proposition that customers take advantage of, of in RDS. Um, and then, you know, the fact that RDS provides automatic backups is, uh, you know, really important, as well as point-in-time recovery. So if there is a failure, you know, certainly you can fail over to the second availability zone, but also having your backups stored into S3 with 11 nines of availability provides assurance. And again, this is something that uh, you just schedule the time and when the backups are taken, your database stays online, but is able to continue to run. And there's many other uh, features in terms of security and encryption and Particularly if you're thinking about migrating from commercial database, you know, high availability, encryption, security controls, oftentimes these are additional expenses or features that force you into sort of the enterprise edition of commercial databases, whereas from an RDS perspective, you can use all of these functions within open source framework just simply through the capabilities that RDS uh, itself provides. Um, so uh, moving beyond just traditional RDS, you know, we want to think about, and customers asked us to consider, well, you know, that's great from an availability perspective, patching and backups, but still from the execution engine perspective, uh, uh, there's the idea that commercial databases provide superior durability or throughput or performance, right? Uh, so uh, oftentimes, if you've seen any of the talks around uh, Amazon Aurora, you'll hear that, you know, we wanted to reimagine the way the relational database uh, worked, right? So if you're building a relational database today, you take advantage of cloud-native architectures and be able to uh, deliver the performance and durability and availability of commercial databases, but do so at a price point uh, more aligned with open source ecosystem. And this is really what, you know, the, the design principles of Amazon Aurora. And so um, when we started with, with Aurora, uh, you might be familiar, it's been available for over two years and it has, you know, full MySQL compatibility. So MySQL 5.6 compatibility. And uh, I didn't get a chance to update the slide, but if you're, Part of the, the um, keynote yesterday, we also extended the Aurora to now have Postgres compatibility as well. So we have the choice of either MySQL or Postgres compatibility. So sometimes I get asked, what's the on-premise equivalent of Aurora? And of course, that, that answer is MySQL or Postgres, right? Uh, so from an application perspective, from the query execution perspective, human perspective, 100% compatible. And just we've, I'll walk through some things we've done at the storage side to make it, to make it unique. Um, so, really, we talked about this idea of a storage, uh, service-oriented architecture applied to the database, right? So, we thought about, you know, purpose-built storage for database workloads on transaction processing, and we wanted to spread that across multiple availability zones to provide high availability and separate out the storage from the database and then think about the different layers of the database architecture and can we segment those out into services and then use 
native AWS services like DynamoDB and Simple Workflow to essentially provide the coordination. And so from a storage perspective, again, from the API perspective, SQL perspective, compatibility perspective, uh, we have full compatibility with MySQL and Postgres, but from the storage perspective, now we are starting to deliver on many of the performance, uh, increasing performance that commercial databases offer. So Aurora storage is not available uh, to systems outside of Aurora. Uh, it's purpose-built. Um, it requires three availability zones. It actually looks at uh, 10 megabyte uh, sections of redo logs and replays those redo logs directly in storage, and it just replicates them six times across three availability zones to provide high availability for your uh, database transactions, and then continuously and automatically pushes those, those changes down to S3 as well. So, of course, there are six copies across three availability zones of your data in the Aurora storage, and then it's continuously and automatically replayed back into S3, uh, which provides the 11 nines of availability there. And some of the benefits is, of course, you know, instant crash recovery. So if you ever had a failure or had to look at, you know, failing over to separate database instance, the database needs to catch up. And so failover might take, you know, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever, but it might take a few minutes for the database to process through the archive log files or whatever files there might be to, to get the, the point in time back in, in the database up and running. Of course, with Aurora, because we have segmented these out into 10 megabyte chunks, they're able to replay a lot faster. And so we say it's nearly instantaneous crash recovery for database. So when we do a failover in however unlikely event of a failure, uh, the database can be up and running typically in less than 45 seconds, which includes the time to detect the failure, move the DNS information over, and then start the database up and, and get it open. Some customers actually find that time to be significantly less than 45 seconds, but as a rule of thumb, um, significant gain over even RDS architecture. Um, and then the other point that we deliver through Aurora um, is the fact that the database cache remains survivable in case of failover, right? Uh, so one of the, the problems of, you know, standby database is if it does failover and I go through my crash recovery, well, then the database cache, all the database objects need to be repopulated back into memory, and that takes a period of time. But with the Aurora storage engines, again, for both MySQL and Postgres, uh, provides a survivable cache. So this provides significant application performance uh, in, in the event I do need to fail over to one of my standbys. And then with Aurora, uh, you know, I move beyond the RDS model of a single uh, failover target that, that remains inaccessible except in the case of a failure, but now I can have up to 15 Aurora replicas across three availability zones. Any of those 15 replicas uh, can be failover targets, and you can set precedence in terms of which one goes first, second, third, fourth. Um, but then the standby database is also available for reads, uh, which can be an important cost-saving uh, consideration. So, you know, the Aurora storage, one, it can go up to 64 terabytes. You only pay for the storage you're actually using, so it dynamically grows. And then the fact that, you know, your standby database can now be read from uh, kind of results in, you know, customers actually find lower cost by adopting Aurora than even if they're running RDS MySQL, because in you know, RDS MySQL, your standby database is, is not available for reads. It's only there for failure. Um, and then also you have to pre-allocate storage in traditional RDS model, whereas with the Aurora storage, you can just simply start expanding dynamically in 10 megabyte uh, chunks, which provides net cost savings for, for most customers. Um, so uh, another enhancement to kind of, you know, uh, bring bridge this gap in terms of commercial database performance on open source engines that AWS delivers is increasing insight into what's going on in the database itself. So one of the, the pushbacks we hear is, you know, 
in the RDS model, since you're delivering databases as a service, you know, my database administrators don't have, you know, the super user privilege, you know, uh, sys or sysdba or sa role uh, kind of equivalent. Um, but then also, you know, they can't log into the operating system. You know, there's good reasons from a managed service perspective that we limit that because, you know, we have a lot of automation and we ma manage a pretty massive fleet of databases. So you still have the most relevant roles for application developers. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's seen as this black box and you're not able to see what's actually going on in the database. So over time, we've increasingly added uh, new metrics in terms of moving beyond just CPU and I.O. and stats. And so I think there's over 40 metrics now that you can monitor under one second granularity, you know, have them exposed to CloudWatch logs and then be able to do alerts of those. So if you're out of, you know, running out of memory or storage, some kind of problem in the database, these can all be alerted upon. But then we've kind of extended that now. So another announcement um, that you might have heard about earlier uh, yesterday was uh, performance insights, right? So moving beyond the operating system and, and basic I.O. characteristics, but actually being able to get insights into the database performance, right? So we want to continue to open up the monitoring, configuration, and uh, availability of the database within the open source world, but delivering it as a managed service. So this kind of combination of things, you know, looking at, you know, reducing licensing costs by adopting, you know, open source databases and then making the decision if Amazon Aurora, you know, delivers the durability, performance, and throughput you're looking for while delivering that as a managed service with appropriate insights into actual uh, debugging or, or application performance are kind of the core tenants that customers take advantage of as they go through this process of moving off uh, commercial databases. Um, so from a pricing perspective, you know, I think, you know, some of the tenants are, again, you know, get away from the perpetual licensing or the one-year, two- or three-year commitments um, and really moving towards, uh, you know, on-demand pricing, right? Uh, so you can just pay for, it, you know, the, the capacity that you need. You can right-size based on your workload. And then, you know, of course, we do provide, you know, discounts. So with the nature of database workloads such that I might have an on-demand period of time for, you know, a few months or maybe six months where I'm testing, does it make sense, does my application work? But then given the nature of database workloads that they're typically on 24 by 7, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, reserved instance pricing becomes, you know, a really a great cost savings mechanism. But, you know, there's no uh, lock-in through, you know, software contracts or 22% maintenance costs that, customers really appreciate and, and oftentimes provide a motivation for change. Uh, so having said that, hopefully I gave you a little bit of an overview of, of you know, uh, some of the reasons why customers move and some of the platforms they develop. And now John's going to talk a little bit more about how customers actually can, services that you provide to actually do that migration. Great. Thanks, Reg. Uh, thank you for the introduction. My name is John Winford. I am the technical program manager for the database migration service and schema conversion tool. So we're going to talk a little bit today about how you can migrate your databases to uh, AWS, as well as do a bit of a demo so we're just not all looking at PowerPoints all day long. So when I joined AWS, I thought I was joining a tech company. Thought, you know, play the latest and greatest technology. What it's ended up is I'm actually spending all my time moving stuff around. Ended up being a bit of a moving company, if you will. But in all this experience helping many thousands of customers move their databases, I've come up with a lot of... Uh, interesting tidbits of information and things that people need to be aware of because as much as I like to project that migration is easy, the fact is it's not an afternoon project and a lot of analysis and thought is really a good thing to put into your project before you get going. Things to think about uh, right off the bat are can you afford downtime? 
Because if you can afford downtime, your migration options are much wider than if you can't. Uh, it makes it simpler, but you know it has those drawbacks about being a bit more intrusive to the end users. If you're doing a migration, is it a good time to think about moving off a commercial database? Greg talked a lot about some of the advantages of uh, the open source platforms, but of course, what with RDS and EC2, you can stick with what you've got, no problem at all. As part of the migration, you could also think about, you know, what data you need to bring. Do you need to bring everything that you've ever recorded for all time? Now, I know when you probably speak to your finance department, they're going to say, oh no, we need that data from 1972, but do you really? Uh, migrating into the cloud is a good time to look at you know, shrinking that down and just bringing what you need. Now, as much as we like to talk about moving to open source, fully aware that it's not always plausible, but a good thing to do is take an inventory of your applications and go, do they support another, another database engine? Things may have changed since you purchased it. They may have added new uh, engine support. Or if you have in-house applications, what's the effort that it's going to take to change it to work with a new engine? And probably more importantly than anything else, do you have the technical expertise to support a new engine type? Although all database engines are inherently similar, there's obviously some technical differences. Not saying people can't learn, but if you are going to switch engines, it's something to consider. And the other bullet point I usually have at the end here is, are you aware of some of the benefits a managed service can bring? I think Greg's gone through a lot of those, so I would answer that question yes right now. So this is going to sound sort of strange coming from me. But in a way, we don't care what you use to migrate to the cloud. We just want you to migrate. So I'm going to here to talk about DMS and SCT, but it's actually important to note there's a lot of other options, especially, like I mentioned, if you're willing to take some downtime. If you're not willing to take downtime, this list gets a lot shorter. But if you are, there's some great options out there. Things like with SQL Server. Uh, the RDS team recently announced the support for backfile import, which is something you won't find anywhere else. So if you can take that outage, great. Just take the back file. It's going to be the simplest way to get your data into the cloud. Now, that's not to say you can't use it in conjunction with things like DMS to actually replicate the changes across if you wanted to after the fact. But you know, just be aware of the, some of the options that are out there. MySQL read replicas, perfect example. You know, If you're going to stick with the MySQL platform, there's no harm at all going that route. And of course, the other, other engines have their own equivalent of the way you can get data in and out. But as I mentioned, if you want to have a low downtime migration, that list gets a lot shorter. So at AWS, we're all about being responsive to customers. And one of the things we heard for many years was that customers wanted it to be easier and less intrusive to migrate to the cloud. What I mean by less intrusive is that your end users aren't actually going to even know that the migration is happening. The downtime during the migration to switch from your original source on-premise to your new cloud will be very minimal, in fact, on the order of seconds to minutes as opposed to hours. And then once the migration is complete, customers asked us uh, to enable ongoing replication, ongoing sync between your on-premise system to the cloud to make sure everything's all good, or perhaps synchronizing back to on-premise if you feel you need to have a DR on-premise. And the other thing they've actually asked is to enable a sync between database engines, between database engines to give that flexibility to perhaps store BI data in one engine that's maybe open source and free, versus a commercial engine, which you need to use because you have some application that only supports a commercial engine. Now, all of that said, this sync and the ability to move between engines addresses one of our number one requests, and that is the ability to move off commercial license-intensive engines onto cloud-native open source solutions. 
So it's with all that in mind that we came up with DMS. For those of you that were here last year, Andy announced it last year at reInvent, uh, we went into a beta program and we opened it up GA uh, early 20, what year is it, 2016? Uh, and uh, it's now been widely available. We've had a number of new updates and we've actually added a number of new uh, engines. The great thing about DMS is we designed it to be simple. You can get going in 10 minutes or less and we designed it to enable a near zero downtime migration. The kind of catchphrase we use is we try to call it a replication Swiss Army knife. We give you the ability to move between engines, between on-premise, EC2, RDS, or back the other way. It's always a good time to point out that AWS doesn't believe in vendor lock-in. If you want to use DMS to move your data back out of the cloud somewhere else, you can do it. The only restriction we have with DMS is you can't move your data from an on-premise system back to an on-premise system. And good time to just reiterate, that Amazon Aurora logo actually includes the new Postgres SQL compatible version, so you can definitely use DMS to move data from whatever data source you're using into the new Aurora Postgres SQL compatible edition. So you won't get into these details in some of the big keynotes. Migration is a complicated thing. If you're moving data, you know, that's only one part of the equation there's actually this whole thing called the database schema, which I'm sure everyone in this room knows about. DMS is primarily a data mover. If you were to fire up a DMS task right now and move data from source to target, DMS is gonna create the tables that it needs to move data. It's gonna use the same names, the same data types, or the equivalent data types in a new engine type, but it's not gonna move all the other stuff, the stored procedures, the triggers, the views, all of the sort of almost intelligence part of the database, if you will. That's where the schema conversion tool comes in. It's a free download off our website, and it helps you convert from one engine type to another and move all of those objects across. It's not going to get it 100%. Obviously, there are some very engine-specific things that differ from engine to engine, but it gets a huge percentage of it and will save you many, many hours of work. Uh, and it's available for a lot of different engines. Here are all the relational engines SCT works with. So you can see you could convert an Oracle schema to Postgres, or just as easily, if you were in MySQL and you wanted to try out Postgres, it can help you convert that scheme as well. Just reiterating, free download, give it a shot, works with a variety of different platforms, and it really does help automate that conversion between engines. We actually also recently added what we call schema copy. So your actual first step of a migration is to move your schema. Even if you're sticking with the same database engine, SCT can actually copy that, in, that schema, say from one Oracle, database to a new empty Oracle database, and then you use DMS to move the data across. It has some neat features in there. Uh, it will highlight, for example, if you are using features in your source schema that would not be available in RDS. Sometimes RDS isn't going to be the solution for you, and this will do a good job about telling you what will and will not work. It will also help automate uh, code changes. So if you have a bunch of in-house applications, after you've converted your schema, you can point it at your source code repository and it will scan your source code and attempt to change any embedded SQL statements from whatever they were written in to whatever the new target uh, language will be. SCT is also available for data warehouse conversions. So if you're looking to move off one data warehouse engine, and obviously we're a little bit biased here to Amazon Redshift, uh, it can help convert that schema and optimize it by evaluating uh, your usage as well in the process. So to reiterate, data migration is a two-step process. Your first step is to move your schema. Your second step is to move your data using DMS. 
Now, moving your schema, as I said, you can use SCT, whether you're switching database engines or sticking with the same engine, or you can use your native tools if you're more comfortable if you're staying with the same engine type. So say you were working with SQL Server, you could just use SQL Management Studio to export your schema and then import it and apply it to your new target before using DMS. You certainly don't have to use SCT. So how is it that DMS enables near-zero downtime migration? If you look at the picture up on the screen, although it does say customer premise and AWS, remember, like I said, you can easily use this to go the other way, so you could reverse the diagram, or you could be moving data between EC2 and RDS. So you start by spinning up a replication server. Behind the scenes, this is an EC2 box that we have our software installed on, but what's different from a normal EC2 host is you never log on to it directly. It's a managed service, so you interact with it through the AWS console, the CLI, or the SDK. Once it's up and running, you define your endpoints. So your endpoints are, in essence, like an ODBC connection string. You're basically telling DMS, how do I connect to my database? Now, the DMS server is actually like a big CPU. So you can have many different endpoints and many different replication tasks going on at the same time. You could be moving data from on-prem to the cloud, and at the same time moving data from another database that's already in the cloud to a data warehouse for analysis if you wanted. So as many endpoints as you want, but what you do then is you select which tables, schemas, or databases you want to move. You can move the whole database, or you can move bits of the database. It's a logical replication product. It doesn't move things down to the block level. It, in essence, queries the data out of the engine and inserts it into the target, and that's how we can go between different engines. Then you sit back, relax, and watch DMS move the data from source to target, and if you've chosen, it will keep it in sync. Keeping it in sync is a good time to mention that although it's called the database migration service, it's actually a replication tool. So you can use this for an ongoing replication between systems, whether you're doing this for a DR purpose or perhaps for BI and analysis. So you could be continually feeding data from your ERP system to your BI system, and it'll be up to date within seconds. So there are a lot of uses that you can do with DMS, and it's also important to note that you can filter down uh, tables as well. So you don't need to move all the records in a table, you can just move groups of records. And when you're ready, you take a small outage, flip your applications over from source to target, and away you go. So that's why we call it a minimal downtime migration, not a no downtime migration, because that flip, it's going to take some time, whether it's a second or two, because all you're doing is updating a DNS record, or you need to recompile your app to point at the new engine. You know, that's why we don't give any set figures, but it's pretty quick. Going back to how DMS works, logical replication product, like I mentioned, we load table by table. By default, we do eight tables at a time, although you can configure it. If there's any interruption during the replication for whatever reason, during the first phase, which we call the bulk load phase, when you're taking the whole set of data in the table, it will restart whatever table it happens to be in the middle of. If you're during the replication phase where things are being kept in sync, it's just gonna resume from where it left off, down to the row level. So how does all of this work? We have something we call change data capture behind the scenes, or CDC. Databases 101 tells you that changes are written to a database log. All we are doing is reading those changes from the database log through the native APIs. And that's why we don't support really old versions of database engines, because those APIs were not available. And it's also important to note that because we do this, there's a great benefit, and that is there is no client-side install required. DMS just makes a connection out over the wire and brings the data in. 
It does require a little bit of configuration on your part, which you may have already done. Uh, you'll have to enable that logging on the source database engine if you want to use the replication. Oracle, that's supplemental logging. Postgres, you've got to have access to the wall log. Just the usual configurations there. So what else can you do? Uh, consolidation is a great one. DMS doesn't care. You can go from three different engines, take bits and pieces of the data, and funnel it all into one target. It's a great thing to do for analysis. If you've got customer lists in a CRM system and then a sales system, what have you, you want to get a cohesive list of all your customers, you can use DMS to pull all that information together and put it in one spot. You can, of course, also do the reverse. If you have a monolithic ERP system that is just huge and you want to split out into microservices, you can use DMS to take that information and split it into multiple different targets. Now I'm kind of done with the, uh, the slides, so I'm going to get on to a demo. I have to apparently start this from the computer. Usually I'd run these live, but for the sake of some time saving, we're just going to do a video and I'm going to try to talk to it. All right, so the theory here is we are going to move some data from Oracle to Postgres. So right here on the screen, I'm just showing you an Oracle demo database we have available, a bunch of tables in here, procedures, views, what have you. Uh, this sample is actually available on GitHub if you want to go download it and try it yourself. You can see it's a sports ticketing system. We've got a bunch of information in there right now. Um, just going through, showing you a bit of the tables. And conversely, I'll go and connect to my Postgres SQL target. And you can see in here, there's, there's really nothing here. It's an empty database with a couple of default schemas. So the first step, like I mentioned, is to go and convert your schema. So I'm going to launch the schema conversion tool, which, as I mentioned, is a free download. You can go try today. Um, and what you do is you make a connection to your database. So I'll just go do that. Define your connection string. In this case, my database is RDS, but remember, this can be done on-premise, no problem at all. I'm going to make a connection, and it's going to have a look and get a list of all the schemas that are in the database. I'm just going to work with my sample schema for the moment. So once I do that, it then does a bit more analysis, looks through all of the objects in the database, and figures out which ones can be converted easily and which ones are going to take a little bit more work. So once it's done doing that processing, it's going to pull up what we call the assessment report. And this assessment report gives you a snapshot view as to the work effort it's going to take you if you choose to switch database engines. So it should come up in a second here. And one of the neat things about it is it gives you a good executive summary, which executives like. But then, of course, we drill into some more detail. You can export it to PDF or CSV. And the first half of the report talks about conversions to MySQL-based engines. Uh, so you can see here we're going to have most objects convert, but we've got, some, we've got some work to do, actually, in the red area. You move down to the second half of the report, and it shows you how things are going to convert if you went to a Postgres engine. Now, just to be perfectly clear, this varies from database to database. In this case, this source database is going to convert better to Postgres than it will to MySQL, which is why I'm selecting it here, but it's certainly not always the case. I should mention that SCT is going to work fine with the new Aurora version, uh, but this screenshot was done before that was released. So I've selected Postgres as my target, and you can see it's appeared on the right-hand side. So the left is the source, the right is the target, uh, and it's just going and readying the project. It's going to flip across here to... Just wait until, until I switch to the thing. We want to do just that one scheme I was talking about, DMS sample. And then the next thing that we're going to do is 
go through, you can see we've got all the same tables before, but I like to switch back to the assessment report view because one of the neat things about it is it has this action items list. This action item list shows you here are all the things that I couldn't convert automatically and it's sort of step by step you can go through and click on them and see what it is you're going to have to do to get it to work. So you can see it's highlighted what hasn't worked with that conversion and what's good about it is when you highlight it over it, it gives you a link, tells you what's wrong and a lot of times it will direct you to a URL saying this is where you can go to look up some more information on it. I've just selected all the tables, I've converted them and you can see it's moved it over to the right hand side. You don't have to convert every last object in your database. You can obviously point and click on the tree and choose only the objects you wish to convert. So I've converted my tables, my views, but if I switch back here, this is again going back to that work item list, uh, what I can do is I can convert this particular procedure that's having issues. So on the left at the bottom is what it is. On the right is now SCT's best effort at converting, but you can see it's highlighted in comments what hasn't worked and what you should go, to go do or investigate to try to make it work. Now obviously I don't want to apply that dysfunctional procedure to my database right now, so I'm just going to apply all of my tables and my views to the database. You can apply bits and pieces, come back later, continue working on it, but for the sake of the demo of course I can't go through every last action item here. So I've now gone, I've applied my tables and I've applied my views to my target database. If I switch back to my database query tool and do a refresh, you can now see those objects have appeared in my PostgreSQL target. So there they all are, there's the tables and the associated views. Of course, if I go and I look at the tables, you're going to see there's no data in there because remember step one, move your schema, step two, move your data. Empty tables, but at least they're there. So the next step is to go and move the data with DMS. So I'm going to switch over to the AWS console, actually I forgot about this, uh, they're very closely linked. Uh, SCT knows all about the schema, it knows what the source is, it knows what the target is. So I'm actually going to export a script that will tell DMS what it needs to do to move the data from the source to the target. That's what this is up on the screen, it's just basic JSON. You can see that we are taking all the tables and we're also converting the schema and the tables to lowercase. That's because by default Postgres has lowercase objects, Oracle has uppercase objects, so we're handling that as part of the conversion. So when I go to DMS on the console, I'm just showing you here, I've got a replication server up and running already, and I've also pre-created endpoints. Like I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of different endpoints you can have, um, as many as you want or as few as you want. I've just pre-created them to save time. I'm going to go and create a task to move the data, give the task a name. As I said, it was a sports demo database. I'm going to choose my Oracle source endpoint and my Postgres target endpoint. I want to migrate the existing data, but I can also do changes if I wanted. And then I always enable logging. It's not on by default because, of course, CloudWatch Logs does cost some money, but it's just good to know in case something is going wrong. I can manually specify what it is I want to move. Like I could go here and say, look, I want to move all tables or some tables. I can do custom rules. But instead, I'm going to go to the JSON tab, which is, you know, admittedly a little bit more technically advanced, but I'm going to copy that JSON that SCT generated and just paste it in. So the same JSON is in there with those transformations I mentioned to move things to lowercase, but I'm going to edit it just to save a bit of time, and I want to bring on only a subset of tables over. So this wild card, the percent sign, I'm just going to add NFL in front of it and bring over only tables that start with NFL. 
I kick it off. There's the task in the uh, tasks tab of DNS. <clears throat> I've condensed the time a little bit on this to, uh, to get through things. And as information starts moving across, you can monitor the progress up there in the summary, as well as down in the details tab at the bottom. The task runs, it's moving the data, it's transforming things so it knows, look, the table's uppercase in Oracle, it's lowercase in Postgres. It goes across, and now if I run that same query, you can see the data is there in the Postgres database. Uh, a couple of NFL tables we're looking at here data in both of them, but if I go and I look at a table, the person table in this case, you'll see there's no data present because we only wanted to move the NFL tables. And that pretty much wraps up what I was gonna show for a demo today. You've heard us from AWS talk about the service, but probably the best thing of all is to hear from a real customer that has done one of these migrations and can really tell you about how it works. So I'll hand it over to Aaron. Thanks, Thanks John. I'm Aaron Kurs. I'm a senior director at FINRA on the Enterprise Data Platforms team. FINRA is the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. Uh, we oversee uh, all security firms doing business with the public in the United States. We get billions of trades, quotes, and order data daily, upwards of 75 billion events per day, as well as forms, filings, membership information, and financial information from our member firms in support of our mission for investor protection and market integrity. About three years ago, FINRA started its move to the cloud. We started with our market reg portfolio, which was primarily big data. They lived on big data appliances, and we saw an opportunity in the cloud to improve our ability to scale, both now and in the future, as well as lower our cost and improve our agility. We wanted to move off of our proprietary hardware or software onto a more open source platform. <clears throat> so we also wanted at the same time to take that opportunity to automate and minimize the amount of effort each team was spending on their core operational needs. As a financial regulator, it was important that we not sacrifice in the areas of data security and operational awareness. We needed to understand what was happening when there were problems happening so that we could troubleshoot the issue. Fast forward to about middle of this year, June, July, we wrapped that migration up and realized many of those benefits. The stack at this point looks pretty much like this, so we continue to enhance it. We're using Amazon S3 for our data lake. We do the ingestion and processing primarily in Amazon EMR, that we're finding more and more use cases for Lambda. We're leveraging A-Space for our OATS processing and stock market order flow reconstruction. As part of that cloud migration, we built out and open-sourced HERD, which is our unified data catalog, which keeps track of everything in our data lake. And we use Splunk for monitoring and processing. Monitoring, processing, and cost. Well before that migration completed, we started to look ahead at other, the next set of applications that we're gonna to have to migrate. Those applications were primarily relational databases, online transactional type systems. There's more than 100 of those systems, and we expected that they would continue to need to uh, leverage relational databases. Based on the positive experience we had leveraging the Amazon EMR service, we immediately started to take a look at RDS. It's support for multi-AZ, read replicas, 
and the security as well as the ability to scale instance types and storage were extremely attractive to us. In terms of the engine, we needed to take a look because we were a very SQL-centric shop. We evaluated what areas were important to us, and those areas were more advanced SQL, like common table expressions and analytic functions, as well as strong procedural language support. We needed replication capabilities, security at rest and in transit. And it needed to perform well even in the more complicated SQL. So for us, the answer was Postgres. So for me, one of the areas I needed to focus on was actually our data sharing hub. Uh, these applications rely heavily on this hub. The hub exists in our on-premise environment today and was built in response to a growing problem we were having with point-to-point -point dependencies between databases. Those point-to-points were creating challenges where the consuming application would create performance impacts on the providing database. As well, there was a potential for a coupling of SLAs where a consuming application may have a much tighter SLA than the database that it was pulling from, in which case it would automatically elevate the SLA of that source database. This is primarily done using Oracle materialized views. So we moved to this hub architecture, which you can kind of see, I guess, to your left, um, where applications that want to expose certain data sets to other applications do so through replicating a materialized view into the hub, and consuming applications are able to leverage that data via materialized view replication out. So the next step was to figure out what this would look like in AWS. Obviously, as I already mentioned, the hub would be sitting on an RDS PostgreSQL database. It would leverage the multi-AZ support that comes out of the box, as well as KMS encryption for our data security needs at rest, and enforce and force SSL connections. We saw good potential in offloading some of the re-traffic using the re-replicas, and we played around with some of the early incarnations of the AWS uh, database migration service. I think it was the database migration tool um, and, and saw some benefits there. It supported the database engines we needed to support, but most importantly, the database migration service exposed an API which would allow us to automate this. So the problem solved, not quite. We can't expect all 100 databases to move in one weekend. We can't expect that every time one database moves, all of its dependent applications make either code changes or move along with them. So we had to find some way to minimize the impact for each of these application databases to move to the cloud. So it got a little bit more complicated. In the end, we introduced an intermediate state where we actually kept the on-premise hub database up and available to support the replication needs of those applications still residing in our on-premise data center, and are standing up our AWS implementation leveraging DMS. So those applications that did move to the cloud would be able to leverage the new hub in AWS. But we would expand the expectations of DMS. We would actually use it to replicate the data that was produced in the cloud back down to our on-premise hub as well as replicate the data from our hub from the providers on inside of our data center up to the cloud. This would minimize the amount of impact each application would feel as their 
perhaps upstream data source moved to the cloud, they would continue to be able to replicate the data out of the on-premise hub, even though the, their partner's database was no longer on-premise. So we decided to wrap that DMS API because our overall service needed to support a few additional items. We wanted to be able to support user grants and administration on those hub objects that the producer applications created. Uh, the producers own the entire what we call data interface. They're, they're responsible for defining what they want to expose as well as who should have access to it. We also wanted to give them the ability to create secondary indexes and views on top of the tables they expose. As well, we wanted to capture metadata and register uh, these data interfaces in that herd unified data catalog that we mentioned before. In addition, automation lights out operations a first-class citizen at FINRA. So we wanted to incorporate the process in their overall SDLC. We wanted to have them actually register the changes that they were going to be making in their re replication tasks inside their code repositories and test it along with the code that they were doing with each change. So some lessons we learned along the way. Limited lob setting versus full lob had no real benefit, having no real benefit above 64K. We found it to not be terribly beneficial for us. Uh, the, that setting is at the task level, which is also the transactional boundary. So it applies to all lobs within that task. And you have to set a maximum, and if the maximum is exceeded, it would truncate the data. So for us, we opted not to use that. Instance types matters, that's not news, but I think a lot of times people look at instance type and their first thought is look at CPU and RAM, but keep in mind what DMS is doing, it's moving data. Um, for us, the network was a big factor. Uh, that, that definitely made us move up in instance type. Case sensitivity in terms of table names, if you have mixed case and that case difference is the only thing that's differentiating two tables, those can be challenging, pay attention to those. Single byte character to UTF-8. Um, for us, the best approach was to actually pre-create these tables. You could use SCT to do that. Um, if you leave it to DMS, it will widen the columns to account for the potential multi-bytes. DMS also exposes error behavior settings, which allows you to have more granular control about the state of a task when it encounters certain uh, conditions. We found those to be very important uh, for us to be able to control and have tasks stop when certain conditions are encountered. Be aware of your CloudWatch retention. By default, I believe that is set to forever, um, which can lead to filling up your uh, replication instance storage, which leads to the next one. Pay attention to your DMS replication instance storage. If that fills up, your tasks tend to become unresponsive, and you're probably going to need to manually intervene to try and get things right again. Also for us, some of the documented scenarios that DMS doesn't support, they, they definitely call this out, can be very hard to detect. Um, and two of them in particular are updates to primary keys, which is something that you don't expect to happen. But if it does happen, you, you want to know so that your rep, because your replication may break, you'll start to diverge from the source. In addition, table truncation on the source side um, can also lead to those same type of scenarios. Features we want to see. Um, for us, we'd like to see better support for scaling of DMS. 
what we mean by that is really more horizontal scaling. Uh, we would like the ability, if we get to a point where um, we see a replication instance struggling to keep up, we'd like to be able to actually move a replication task to a new DMS instance and not have to have it start from scratch, basically know where it was in terms of CDC processing. We'd like to have support for materialized views in PostgreSQL as a source. Uh, we encourage applications to not necessarily directly expose their internal schema, and this would be a good way for the, those applications to encapsulate what their internal schema is versus what they're sharing with other applications. We'd also like to see some DMS events for subscription, meaning in, in the cases where there's a multi-AZ failover or a task failure, have some way to um, subscribe to those events. And RDS read replica multi-AZ ELB support. So this one's probably a little um, different than most been thinking of. We would like to leverage those read replicas to support offload some of that read traffic. Um, but what we would like to be able to do is not have to worry about one of them falling over and then having to point a bunch of app client applications to a different source, as well as potentially seeing a different state of the data. And then I think the database performance management sounds like it's on its way. I saw the earlier presentation on performance insights, and that's along the lines of what we we're hoping to see. We've historically been an Oracle shop, so we're used to OEM and Toad to be able to analyze uh, what's been happening over time, try and troubleshoot particular performance issues, what kind of plans were used, what times, and so on. So that's exactly the kind of thing we're looking to see. And with the rollout of Amazon Aurora PostgreSQL Compatible Edition, we're definitely interested in looking at this for this hub architecture. Um, why we're interested is our hub's workload is read-heavy um, for every data table that is replicated into the hub, it's probably replicated out more than once. Um, so we see a good opportunity there to potentially use um, those closer in sync uh, read replicas, though I know I don't think out of the gate it will support it. Ideally, we'd love to see uh, those read replicas be supported as an endpoint or for a source on the DMS side. The faster recovery and survivable cache, I think they went well into those. Um, those are definitely something that we um, would need for this application. It's, a, it's very critical since it's at the center of many of our other database applications. And finally, default injection queries. I don't know necessarily if they'll be out day one in the Postgres compatible edition, but the MySQL edition has these where you're able to simulate certain failures that otherwise, since it's a managed service, you really, I don't know how to do it. Um, they will be supported. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, that's all I had. Um, don't forget to turn in your course of vows. Yeah, so I think we have about a few minutes left for questions. And uh, just one thing on a feature list. So, uh, you know, one point in the survival of the failure scenarios. So in Aurora, you know, you, through SQL, so we mentioned that Aurora is fully 100% compatible with MySQL and Postgres, but some additions we did put into it is you can actually, through SQL, uh, simulate an availability zone failure, a disk failure, a storage node failure, all through SQL, which kind of helps for testing the application, and that's because it's actually a feature of Aurora storage, the okay. Postgres would support that. That's good. That's a kind of 
<laughs> we, we actually did rehearse beforehand. Uh, and then, you know, with Aurora, you can have up to 15 replicas, so 15 replicas that all read off the same storage. And so in, in MySQL, you know, it's not, uh, it's not uh, atypical to see, like, seconds to minutes replication lag, but because the replicas are all reading off the same storage, we typically see less than 10 millisecond uh, replication lag, and that'll equally be true for Postgres. And a new feature that came out for uh, MySQL, which will take uh, a, a little bit of time for the Postgres side, but we do have a single endpoint for all your 15, up to 15 uh, readers, uh, and we load balance uh, between um, all of them on the MySQL side. So 